You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have Jessica Pierce. She's a professor and an author. We're going to be talking about uh, inside the very big, very controversial business of dog cloning. She's a author of the book, Unleashing Your Dog, a Field Guide to Giving Your Canine Companion the Best Life Possible. So uh, I love dogs. It sounds like she does too. So Jessica, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, well, it's probably obvious, but why would people want to clone their dog? I think the the easiest answer to that question is because they love their dogs. Um, and, you know, that's, that's the good answer. Um, people are motivated by a really strong bond that they have with a particular animal. And I've had that. I understand that feeling. Well, what's, uh, I guess what's wrong with cloning your dog is that you can't clone the dog because the dog has lived with you and, adapted to you and its environment and become its own unique self and that can't be cloned or are there other biological reasons not to do this? Or? So I think um, for me as an ethicist, there are a couple of things that concern me about the cloning of, of companion animals in particular, um, you know, focusing on that and, and, you know, there are broader questions about cloning um, other kinds of animals, for example, livestock, but I'm talking just about pets. You know, one of the things that that concerns me about about it is what we were just talking about. I mean, the the fact that people have such a strong bond um, with their animal, but the idea that cloning in a way is a kind of band aid for for grief and for the fact that your animal is going to die. And you know, to me, it's not. It's not a very healthy way to approach the death of a pet um, to this idea that you don't ever really have to get to let go um, because the animal that if if you were to buy a clone, um, the animal that you will be getting is not the same as the animal that you've lost. It's going to look similar. Um, he or she is going to look similar, but the the temperament, behavior, is is not going to be you know you can't just predict what that's going to be like and it's it's going to probably be a completely different um, 
individual in his or own, her own right. Um, the more important concern that I have with cloning is the impact that it has on this sort of unseen class of dogs who serve as the tools to create the clone. So, and it, it's kind of a weird situation. We have, I mean, this one companion animal pet who is so beloved that somebody would spend $50,000 to to get an exact copy. And at the same time, the dogs who are used to create that clone are valued only as objects or as tools and, and really are exploited. And I mean, they're basically dogs who, they're lab animals um, and their only function really is to create your clone. I don't understand like, what is the cloning process itself? How does it work? Okay. so. So basically, and this is grossly oversimplified, but um, you, if you wanted to clone your dog, um, you would have a couple, a couple of cells from, for example, typically a, a swab of the cheek. So you'd have some DNA. Um, the next step is that a donor dog, and this is where the, the dogs in the lab come in, um, a donor dog would be used to harvest uh, eggs. So a dog who, who's been purchased by the company making your clone, um, and it probably would be more than one dog because in the cloning process, you know, it's, it's an imperfect process and there are a lot of um, failed attempts and, you know, things that, that don't work out. So you'd have probably a couple of donor dogs whose eggs would be harvested through a surgical procedure. Um, the eggs from these donor dogs would then be enucleated. In other words, the DNA would be scraped out. And the good DNA, the DNA from the dog that you want to clone, is inserted into the egg. Um, then, you know, there's a this process in the laboratory where, you know, there's a kind of a surge of electricity, um, and hopefully um, this encourages the cells to fuse and begin cell division. And then you have an embryo, which is embedded into the womb of a surrogate dog. Um, so this is the, the second group of laboratory dogs who then would be put into service. Um, the embryo would be implanted into this dog and um, you know the, the carried to term. And then, you know, I, I, because the process is fairly, it is not transparent, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure whether the process would involve a natural birth or a cesarean section. It might very well be a cesarean section. And then you would have um, the puppy and the surrogate dog would then be, you know, either put into service as a surrogate, a surrogate again, or, you know, be repurposed as it were, or some other, um, some other experimental process. I see what you mean. Yeah. So in the creation of one clone, two, three, four, five, ten, who knows how many dogs could be used and maybe not used in a good way. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a funny thing to say that you love dogs yet be willing to to put dogs through this this process so and maybe you love your dog but don't love 
dogs or it's a funny kind of love. I mean, people say that they love pigs and cows and then are perfectly happy to eat them. So, I mean, I, I know our feelings of love are, are very complicated when it comes to animals, but, um, but that's, that is a, um, probably my primary ethical concern with it. And the reason I say, you know, it's typically within my field of bioethics, you know, the, the interesting issues are ones that are really complex and where there are really compelling arguments on, on both sides of an issue. And with cloning of pets, I just, to me, it's very simple. It's just wrong. And I don't see any compelling argument in favor of it. Well, do you think the people that have their pets cloned know of the process and like what, you know, how much, how transparent is it to them? You know, I suspect not very. Uh, if you go onto the website of one of the companies that um, sell cloned pets or that market cloned pets, um, it's all looks very, um, very happy and simple. And you really don't hear about that, that backstory. It's, you know, if if they were interested in finding out, there's certainly information available, but it's not available on the websites of of people who are trying to sell this product, and um, it's it's not what you're going to hear if you ask. Oh, how does this work? It's going to sound very kind of um, neutral and sterile, and not like real dogs with real lives are involved in in creating the clone for you. Well, have you tried to mystery shop the process and go through it yourself and maybe even then disclose who you are and try to visit one of these companies and see what they do? You know, I haven't tried to visit and I um, can almost guarantee that you would not be allowed in the doors. Um, I, I have not personally tried to present myself as a potential um, client I've talked to people who've been through the process themselves and, you know, it's a really mixed bag. There are people who, you know, because I've written about cloning and have written quite um, clearly that, that I'm opposed to it. I, I get emails from people who say, you know, it's the greatest thing I've ever done. Um, I love my cloned dog more than anything in the world. And, you know, it's brought me tremendous happiness. And, and then there are people who, have described to me um, processes that that seem quite almost cloak and dagger. Like you never actually go to the facility to get your dog. You know, they meet you in a hotel lobby and hand <laughs> out. Oh, it's almost like a drug deal, you know. Um, and so, you no, know, it's very. It, it is not a transparent business transaction, from what I can tell. And you interview people who have gotten cloned dogs. You have to be willing to show you, you know, pictures of Fluffy, yeah. the senior, and now Fluffy, the new one, and have you compared them? Yeah, and you know, often they look very similar. Um, and you know, I've I've had a couple of people tell me that the cloned dog, um, and now it's becoming more common, I think, to clone cats, but. Um, I've never actually talked to somebody who had their cat cloned, but people who've had their dogs cloned will, you know, I've had some say, oh, he's very much like he or she very much like um, the original dog. And then others who say there's nothing like the original. And um, even people who have expressed considerable disappointment because they were expecting 
you know, A, and they got B. And, you know, when you get a, a mismatch in expectations like that, it's, it's often not good for the person or the, the dog. Um, and then people who have talked to me, who've had really negative experiences, um, you know, there's, there's not a lot of research on whether cloned dogs have more health problems than, you know, normal, not cloned dogs. Um, and most cloned dogs are too young yet to really know what the long-term effects are going to be. But I talked to one woman who had um, just one medical problem after another with this dog who she had gotten, this clone, and was <laughs> running their bank account dry and tremendously stressful. And so I, th I think it's all over the board. Um, but, you know, it's not the sort of thing where if you're disappointed with it, you can... We could return a dog, I suppose. That sounds like such a horrible thing um, because dogs are not objects, but you know, you outlay all this cash and um, you know, what do you do if it's not what you expect? None of those yeah, scenarios dog, look yeah. very good for the dog. <laughs> well, that's true. The dog doesn't know any better and it's growing up expecting it to behave a certain way and maybe even, I'm sure like the owner probably, I don't know, in their mind, they're thinking the dog must know me, you know, somehow cosmically, it must still know me. Maybe they're looking for that. Yeah. But they certainly have that expectation that it's just like old fluffy. And so like, who knows if that turns into an abusive relationship if the dog's not like old fluffy and, you know, the, the poor thing has no clue, like what it's supposed to be living up to. And yeah, it just seems like a, a sad thing that really, you know, the genie's out of the bottle, the old dog passed, you really can't get it back. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, you know, one of the things that has been distressing to me is to see um, cloning companies trying to market specifically to people who have elderly or ill animals. So targeting, um, you know, an, an audience and trying to sort of get into the in the door with um, veterinary hospice. Um, practices and to me that's really that's really a problem because people who are facing the loss of an animal who is dearly beloved to them are not I hate to say it as bluntly as this but they're not thinking clearly and I've I've been through the process myself so I can say that about myself you just you don't you're vulnerable and um, you know the the anticipation of loss can really make you do things or make decisions that that aren't necessarily in your own best interests or in the best interests of of animals. Um, maybe not your particular animal who's passing away, but um, and I, I think preying on people who are in that vulnerable state, either having just lost an animal or anticipating a loss, is is wrong. And what they need is they need a social worker who's trained in bereavement counseling to to help them through the passing of their animal and not, you know, with this idea that you can somehow make it better because <laughs> nothing can make it better. Yeah. You know, and well, there's, me, even, uh, yeah. there's even advice out there that, you know, if you have a dog that dies, you should wait. Don't just adopt one right away. Even a different yeah. one. Yeah. Know, wait a few months. So like, you're not just trying to, 
replace and you know, you don't shortcut the grief process. Exactly. And I, I think that you've hit the head, uh, nail on the head there with that is to have a, a normal, I mean, that normal in scare quotes there because everybody's grieving process is unique to them. But um, to be able to really grieve properly and to me, honor to honor your animal is to, you know, my my dog, Maya, who passed away last summer. And the last thing that I would do would be clone her because she is so special to me um, as she is. And it, she's unique and I don't want to replace her, you know. I understand. So, yeah. What do you want your role to be in this, you know, niche of the world? Well, <laughs> I think I've my role is as naysayer, which isn't always a good role to be in. But I, I guess what I really would like to say to people is to put the brakes on and really think through whether this is a good idea. Um, you know, I know the technology is is speeding forward. The market is growing. So I have no um great ideas that I'm going to actually stop this from happening. But I really, I would like people to understand the backstory um, and recognize that it's not a good thing for animals in general. And it's not necessarily a good thing even for, for dog owners or cat owners who, um, who are facing loss. Well, maybe the best thing to do is to assemble as many stories as you can of what happened the people that wanted the cloning you know like stories of what was the process like did they meet you in an underground parking garage and you handed them a bag of cash and a paper bag you know was yeah. it more formalized and and then when you got the pet home was it just like the old fluffy or was it now totally different and maybe if you assemble enough of these stories and you know many of them are bad which they probably are maybe that's the best way is to show other people it's not a good idea it's not what you think and you have a big compendium of these things you know maybe a book yeah. on yeah, I think it would make a fascinating book. And I I bet you $100 um, there are already five or 10 books in the works on, on pet cloning um, because, yeah, it's amazing to me. I think um, I get asked for more interviews on dog and cat cloning than on pretty much anything else. And people are really interested in it. And, and also, I would say, concerned about it, um, not, not thinking... Um, uncritically about about the problems that this technology is forcing upon us, and I think you know it's you can't talk about the cloning of dogs and cats without also kind of slipping into a conversation about the cloning of people, and you know the the loss of someone facing a loss of a a pet who's is so important to you you know can imagine and people go to great lengths to um to find a way to deal with that sometimes through cloning and you can imagine parents who have a lot of financial resources and who have lost a child in the same way kind of grasping for any kind of way to deal with that loss and um you know it, it may be illegal but it's coming down the pike it can guarantee it I guess on a slightly different subject, what is your professorship about and, and your book about? You know, are they same issue or ancillary issues around this? 
So really, it's not about the same thing at all. Um, the book Unleashing Your Dog is for, um, I mean, it certainly would be as um, of interest to people with cloned dogs and non-cloned dogs. It's about using the science of what we know about dog cognition and emotion to give our canine companions the best possible life we can um, to give a really simple example you know humans are very um, we're visual mammals and you know really kind of think through our eyes and and experience the world largely through our visual sense and dogs are olfactory animals they experience the world largely and initially through their noses and so, you know, recognizing how important the sense of smell is to our dogs can help us give them a better life in that, you know, for example, taking a dog for a walk, um, giving them ample time to explore the world through their nose and not just say, oh, you know, there's nothing there when they're sniffing a plant or the sidewalk and we don't see anything, but to them, they're there is a lot of interesting information to be had and, um, you know, letting them really have as many rich sensory experiences as possible. And I mean, the connection between the ideas in Unleashing Your Dog and dog cloning are just that, that dogs are, are not objects. They shouldn't be used as objects in commercial businesses or in research laboratories because they have incredibly rich inner lives and emotional lives. And um, so it's really about, you know, recognizing the, the unique um, value of each individual dog's life. Have you, have you seen any um, experiments where they've had dogs like smell every day, hundreds of different things and see if it changes their behavior, their brain or, you know, like really like a given dog is so many the tons of things to smell much more than they normally would smell and what it did to them. Um, no, that's a good question. Um, there is, I mean, what pops to mind is um, a study that was where dogs were basically given, you know, free access to as much smelling as they wanted. And they spent about a third of their time so a third of their time budget was dedicated to just smelling things. So, you know, if you think about taking an hour long walk, 20 minutes of that, you might spend just standing there while your dog sniffs. So um, I have wondered um, whether, you know, if dogs were given complete free reign, would they get some... <laughs> olfactory overload and I don't think they would I I do think they might get olfactory overload from some of the smells that we kind of force upon them in our homes for example you know if you're burning incense or spraying on way too much perfume or cologne or using really strong shampoos um, especially on your dog you know the idea that dogs would like to smell like lavender or tea tree you know, I, I don't think so. I think they'd rather probably smell like the dead animal that they rolled in or, you know, dry grass or just themselves. You know, they have a kind of olfactory yeah. sense of self. But yeah, I think there's I a lot we like, still don't understand. 
Yeah, I was imagining like, what if I owned a dog daycare place and you know, like I brought in like I don't know soil samples from different places and different smells, and mm-hmm. that was part of like the care I gave to the dogs. Like every day, we're you know, like you board your dog here, we're gonna you know show them like thirty new smells or something as part of their care package that they get when they come. Yeah, I just wonder if that would make happier <laughs> dogs. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. I, I like it. Yeah, I don't know. You know, dogs and are interesting. Could, I have three you know, myself. Have a... and I just wonder about. Uh huh. Yeah, I know they they are a source of continual wonderment if you if you stop and really watch them and pay attention and I imagine with having three they're completely different individuals and personalities yeah yeah they're funny like um they get jealous you know like you know they have toys and they may not want a toy but as soon as another one has it they get jealous and then they want the toy and you know if my wife gives them bones like they'll all start out with their own bone you know, jealously eating it. And then they'll they'll see the other one's bone and they'll want that one instead of theirs. And then they'll steal that one. The other one goes back and steals theirs. You know, it's just, it's just funny the things they do. Yeah, they are fun to watch, aren't they? And a good a mirrors for our own behaviors, like thinking the grass is always greener on the other side. Or you know, I, when I go out to eat with my husband, you know, his meals always looks more, <laughs> more appealing than mine. Yeah, so I thing, think yeah. we're not... We're not so different from our, our canine friends. Well, any, um, I don't know if you've observed dogs very closely for a long time. It sounds like you have, but like any interesting things that you feel like you've discovered about them that's not commonly talked about? Oh, that's a good question. It seems like, I would say no. I mean, there are a lot of things that I have observed about dogs that I think are really interesting, but they've all been talked about because dogs really are so popular right now as a subject of study, um, which I think is wonderful. And it's so different from even a decade ago, but especially, you know, two decades ago or three decades ago, where people, a serious scientists didn't study dogs because they're domesticated animals and not real animals. Um, that's really changed. And I'd say almost, I mean, a day doesn't go by where I see some new study in a journal about some aspect of dog behavior, dog cognition, dog emotions. Um, so it's really exploding and it's it's really fun to watch because they're such interesting animals and it's surprising how little we know about them. And so there's just this whole world that is opening up to, to us and those of us who love dogs and kind of pay attention to this literature. So constantly amazed at at what we're learning. Yeah, for people that are interested, what kind of publications or literature, like what are the names of some of the places where you get your info from? Well, I get a lot of alerts just from um, journals in ethology, but, and those are not always easy to, easy to read if you don't have a background in animal behavior, but um, there are like Science Daily, is a, a news feed um, that they do all kinds of different scientific subjects, but they always pick up on the stories that are um, related to dogs and dog behavior. And you can sign up for a daily feed. And so I kind of watch the, the science direct and they always do a really nice job of, of translating the scientific information into um you know, something that is digestible uh, for non-experts. 
So, and, um, you know, even magazines like The Bark um, will often feature this, this new um, research that's coming out at the Whole Dog Journal. Um, I mean, a lot of different, different places. So uh, those are a couple, a couple that people might watch. Well, what are, what are some of like the hot areas in dog research right now? Um, you know, some of the things that I think are really interesting are trying to suss out what, what behavioral changes um, occurred during domestication that differentiate dog behavior from wolf behavior. And it's very controversial. Um, to give an example, um, it's been suggested that dogs um, have uniquely evolved to communicate with humans through facial expressions and are much more adept at um, understanding human faces and paying attention to them. For example, you know, following human gaze, um, following human pointing gestures. So um, Brian Hare, who has a dog cognition lab, um, that's another good place for a lot of interesting information if people want to um, look up Brian Hare. He, uh, he's done a lot of work on, you know, seeing whether dogs and to what extent dogs um, follow pointing gestures and human gaze compared to to wolves. Um, and I think that's pretty interesting. And I was just reading a study uh, that came out within the last couple of weeks about um, the facial anatomy of dogs compared to wolves and um, that very distinctive expression that dogs make that we call puppy dog eyes. Um, use facial muscles that that wolves don't have um and i think that's that's pretty interesting stuff so yeah i could probably talk for at least five or six hours <laughs> about yeah no that's, this research that's it, yeah. it's rare to find someone that's interested so yeah like i noticed it's funny you know they'll they'll be hungry and they'll look at you and you'll give them food and then a second later it's just they, they look the exact same as if they've never eaten the food i know well, they have my perfected go, the case. <laughs> yeah, my wife will say they haven't had anything all day. Those poor things. Look at them. <laughs> you know, I'm like, all right, stop. And yeah. they always say to her, have you fed them? She goes, would you please? Goes, yes, I fed them because they, they look like that all the time. You know? I know. And it's, you know, sometimes I feel sort of judgmental about, you know, how many fat dogs there are. But I totally get it. They have learned how to milk us um, for every little morsel. Um, and my dog, yeah. Bella, could probably use a couple pounds off too. So that, that oh my God, I'm starving to death look is, is really effective. Yeah, I used to go to this, this chiropractor and he had a dog named Radar. And I would come in and Radar would come up and whimper and I would give him a bone, he had little bones there, you know. And then one time I asked the secretary, I said, how many times does the dog get fed a day? She's like, probably 40. I said, really? <laughs> and she goes, watch. So another person came in and Radar ignored me after I gave him the bone and went up to the new person and whimpered. And they go, oh, Radar. And they gave him a bone. Then he left that person. The next person came in. He did the exact same thing. So all day long, the dog was, was doing this to everybody. And it got everyone to give him something. <laughs> That's great. That's a good yeah, story. Really funny. Yeah. <laughs> And was Radar a little chunky? Uh, actually, no. 
No, good. He was, uh, he was okay, yeah. He just was really good at acting, you know, and he was just like, he said, as soon as you fed him, he was like, all right, bye. That's it. He went on to the next person. So he knew what he, he needed to do. Yeah, so, I, I, dogs have definitely, I mean, if you, you know, people, not very many these days, but there are still people who don't think dogs are very smart. Um, I think they're crazy because dogs have definitely learned how to interact effectively with their human counterparts. Yeah, definitely. Do you, and one do you thing, think that they, uh, I was going to say, do you think they actually care about people? Like, do they, do you think they feel emotional and they love them or are they just using them for food? What do you think? You know, that's a good, that's a good question. I think dogs do love us, but I also think we can project a lot of feelings onto them that we want them to have or hope that they have um, that they may not have. And, you know, there's this idea that dogs are totally dependent on us and we're their best friends and they're our best friends. And to me, that's a little bit overblown. And, you know, one thing that I've been thinking about recently um, in relation to a book that I'm working on now is the fact that around 80% of the dogs on the planet don't actually live as pets in human homes. And they live instead as, as street dogs or feral dogs or free roaming dogs or some combination of those. And they, they do quite well on their own. I mean, they're, they're dependent on humans to a certain extent in that they, for the most part, scavenge for, you know, on human food sources of one sort or another, but um, they don't need us unconditionally. Yeah, I think we can be sometimes a bit patronizing toward our dogs and need to remember that they're perfectly capable animals in their own right and not just not just pets. Yeah, that's true. Well, very good. Um, so you've given some ways for people to find out more about dogs, which is good. And then where can they, uh, can you restate your book's title and where can they get it? Sure. Um, so the most recent book is called Unleashing Your Dog. And I wrote it with my colleague, Mark Beckhoff, who is an ethologist. So he studies animal behavior. Um, and you can get it from New World Library, which is the publisher, or on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and probably any other you know, of these online booksellers. But um, those are those are a couple of places where it's available. All right, excellent, excellent. And any um, <clears throat> last things that you want to mention that maybe I haven't asked you? You want to cover? No, I think we've covered a lot of ground. Okay, well, very good. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's been a good call. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on, and um, enjoy the rest of your day. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, 
or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.